and now. With his weekly commentary that only he shows up for when the fish ain't biting, Uncle Ty with Life Sure Is Good. Thank you much, Hezekiah. <laughs> Life sure is good. And you know what? It's been real good for old King Xerxes, too. Yeah, good thing, too, because I heard when he got over his giant hangover from that seven-day party and cooled off a bit, yeah, he started missing his old queen Vashti and started having second thoughts about kicking her to the curb. Yeah, good thing he was surrounded by his good old boy tenants, you know? They got the ball rolling and started encouraging him to start searching for beautiful young women. Yep, that was sure. Women that had never been kissed. Every beautiful girl in every province. 127 province. Yep, <laughs> life is sure good for old King Xerxes. Now all these girls were brought to the palace and placed in Haggai's harem. Yep, there's more than one. Now, Haggai is the king's eunuch who oversees all these women. He, I guess the king has no worries there now, does he? Yeah. The deal was that Haggai would put them through all kinds of beauty treatments, and each girl would be presented to the king. Now, and the one who pleased him the most, she would become the new queen. No wonder the king liked their advice. So, there's this one guy named Mordecai. I know him pretty well because our paths had crossed a few times. Yep, he's a good guy. And he was one of the cousins of these chosen girls, don't you know? Hadassah. Yeah, I think that was her name. But most people just called her Esther. I don't know why, but he basically raised her because she was an orphan. Yep, in fact, I think he eventually even adopted her too. Anyway, his Esther, oh boy, was some serious eye candy. Ooh, doggies. Man, if I was just 20 years younger. Hmm. Anyway, when Esther arrived at Haggai's harem, it seems that Haggai, he done take a liking to her right away. And she got all kinds of perks. She got the best treatments, the special foods. She even got seven personal maids and the palace. Esther and her maids got the best rooms in the harem. Life is looking good for old Esther. Now... One of these guys down to Soggy Persian, don't you know, she said that Mordecai and Esther are some of those Jews that were brought to our country when Xerxes' grandfather ran off them Babylonians. Mm-hmm. It's weird. It's like they keep it a secret or something. I don't know. At least East Esther, she was keeping it a secret. So all I know is Mordecai, he would stroll by that harem court every day to check and see how his cousin was doing. Mm -hmm. So the process went like this. Every girl, 
she got a turn to go to the King Xerxes after she completed 12 months of spa treatments at some big floating spa. They got manicures and pedicures and essential oils and, and the most expensive perfumes, don't you know? Mm-hmm. Talk about high maintenance, my word. When it was time for her to go to the king, each girl could take whatever she wanted to try to impress that king. Mm-hmm. Those poor girls. That walk to the king's quarters had to be a bit scary, don't you know? Each girl would go in the evening, and then sometime in the morning, she was taken to what they called a hand-me-down harem. You know, a concubine harem. I guess she'd just stay there forever and never saw the king again, unless he liked her enough to learn her name, and then he'd ask for her. Yep, he would, don't you know? I gotta think that was rough on these girls, though. Well, when it was Esther's turn, Haggai just recommended that she just go to the king and be herself. No need to take anything special with her, nothing. She didn't need to try to impress him that way. Everybody loved Esther, so I guess she didn't need much to win that old king's heart. Well, and boy, did she ever win the king's heart. King Xerxes was more crazy in love with her than a pig loves not being bacon. Uh-huh. He made her queen and gave her a big old banquet, don't you know? He even called it Esther's Banquet. Mm. Not too original, but I guess it got the point across. It became a holiday. So, yep, yep, life is pretty good for old King Xerxes. Hmm. Now that I think of it, I guess life was pretty good for Esther, too. Life is good. This is Ty Wilkinson, Jack. Back to you, Hezekiah. Previously unveiled. I, I, I just wanted to do that to set up. If you were here, la- well, nobody was here last week because of the weather, but if you were here two weeks ago, let me just kind of bring you up to date on where we are in the, in the book of Esther. Uh, there's this kingdom called Persia that conquered the Babylonians. The king of Persia is named Xerxes. It's about 483 BC, um, and Xerxes has this incredibly big party. Uh, at the end of the party, everybody's drunk. He asks his wife to come in and show how beautiful she is. She says no, and as a result, Xerxes gets mad and banishes her, kicks her out completely. Um, and so she's gone, and he's left with, without a queen. That's the setup. Uh, if, if you were here two weeks ago, you'll remember that God isn't mentioned in chapter 1 of Esther. In fact, he's not mentioned in the entire book of Esther at all. And, uh, and so there are some things that we need to know because if God's not mentioned, we've got to figure out if God's not mentioned, is he responsible for things that happen or not? Because the, the scripture's not really clear about it. In order to do that, let me define some concepts for us as we get started today. The first concept is the word coincidence. 
A coincidence is a striking occurrence of two or more events at one time, apparently by mere chance. Key words in that is by mere chance. Coincidence is is when things happen um, randomly. If you believe that humans are the product of natural selection, of evolution, over millions of years, it's easy to see things that happen and say, wow, that was a coincidence, a striking occurrence of events that happened by mere chance. A miracle, though, is an extraordinary event in the physical world that can't be explained by natural or scientific laws, but rather by a supernatural cause. Key word there is supernatural. Uh, uh, coincidence is natural effect. Miracle is supernatural. Uh, third word that is important to get a hold of is the word providence. Providence is the active intervention of God working through natural phenomena to accomplish his will or show his care for people. So providence is God working through normal, everyday stuff that's around us. When somebody is dead for three days and comes back to life, that's a miracle, all right? That's a miracle, supernatural intervention by God. When somebody has a heart attack and collapses to the floor, their heart has stopped, but on the wall right beside them, there is an IED that's charged and ready to go. And walking by is an emergency room doctor that knows how to use that IED. And in the parking lot is an EMT squad that's ready to take anybody who goes down to a hospital. And the closest hospital has a cardiac unit that's designed to care for people who have a heart attack. That's the providence of God protecting that person's life. All the pieces are in place through natural phenomenon for God to do his his work. Providence is God working upstream in our lives, whether that's five minutes upstream or five years upstream. One last word that's important for you to, to understand, it's the word sovereign. Sovereign means to possess supreme or ultimate power. The sovereignty of God means that he has total control of all things past, present, and future. Nothing happens that's out of his knowledge and control. All things are either caused by him or allowed by him for his own purposes and through his perfect will and timing. He is the only absolute and all-powerful ruler of the universe. God is sovereign. Ultimately, each of us have to decide whether or not we believe that we're here on earth by accident or by design. If we're here by accident, we can live really pretty much any way that we want. We can live for pleasure, we can live for adventure, we can live for safety, we can live for comfort, because when we die, it doesn't matter at all if we're here by accident. But if we're here by design, Someone has made us and created us for a purpose. That changes everything because our purpose on life here is to live in such a way that we can be in relationship with the designer and fulfill his purpose in our lives. If God is sovereign, if God is in ultimate, if he possesses ultimate power, if God is sovereign, there is no such thing as coincidence. If God's in charge of of everything, nothing happens outside of of his permission or his will. Anything that that we see around us that's a coincidence should trigger in our minds, our hearts, I wonder what God's doing in this. 
because there's no such thing as coincidence if God is sovereign. This past week in our life group, we were having a conversation, and one of the people in our life group said, you know what, got to tell you this story. I, I need to see a counselor. I called the counselor, very specific counselor, and the counselor said, hey, I've only got one slot available in all of my schedule. It's on Wednesday nights. And uh, this person in our group said, you know what, I can't do Wednesday nights. That's when my life group meets. My life group is too important. I can't miss it. And the counselor said, that's the, you don't understand, that's the only slot I have. And she said, you know what, all I can tell you is this, I can't meet at that point in time. And so they hung up. About five minutes later, the counselor called her back and said, you're not going to believe this. And she said, try me. And she said, as soon as we hung up, a couple walked into my office that I meet with on Friday nights. They can't meet on Friday nights anymore. And the only time that they can meet is on Wednesday nights. If they take that Wednesday night slot, that frees up the Friday night slot for you. And she said, huh, that's interesting. That's not a coincidence. It's the providential hand of God. Now, what's that have to do with Esther? Esther's story, as you read through the book of Esther, is either filled with a ton of coincidences or the providential hand through every aspect of her story. Uh, if you've got your Bibles out, if, uh, if you've got the phone out, uh, be sure and go there to Esther chapter 2. We're going to work through the first section of uh, uh, that chapter today. Let me just start reading at chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. The king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So Xerxes who's in charge of this country that covers the world, authorizes this national beauty pageant. 127 provinces, from India to Egypt. The, the, the pageant is all about three requirements. The, the girls have to be young, beautiful, and virgins. The story then pauses for a second to introduce the two characters that will be the mainstays uh, in this story for the rest of the book. Verse 5. There was, a citadel, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Verse 7, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter where his, when her father and mother had died. What do we know about Mordecai? Mordecai is Jewish. He's, a, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, uh, his family was taken captive about 125 years earlier, um, and he's landed in this part of the world as a captive in the nation of Babylon and, and now in, Persian, in Persia. He's a, he has a cousin who was orphaned as a child, and he has raised this cousin uh, to adulthood. We learn later that, that Mordecai lives in Susa and that as his job, he works in some kind of official capacity for King Xerxes. 
when I was doing it, when I was studying for this, uh, something really interesting came up, and that's that in the Babylonian records, okay, this is not biblical, in the Babylonian records at this point in time in history, in about 479 BC, there's a record of a guy named Mordecai who comes, who's an accountant that comes from Susa to Babylon to take an inventory of what's in Babylon. We don't know that it's the exact same guy. There could have been more than one Mordecai, but I think it's really interesting that that meshes in that way. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been, oh, let me just pause for a second. What do we know about Esther? We know that she's uh, beautiful, uh, that her, her Hebrew name is Hadassah, her Persian name is Esther. The word Esther means star, like she is the shooting star. She was orphaned, she's brought up by Mordecai, and, and, and she is lovely. She's a lovely, lovely woman. Verse 8. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. The Jewish historian Josephus says that 400 women were collected from all over the kingdom and, and uh, brought to Xerxes to Xerxes to be considered as queen. 400 women. This was not a, a, a beauty pageant where you sign up and see if you win and you, you get a scholarship, okay? It's not that kind of thing at all. When these women were chosen, they were brought to be a part of, of King Xerxes' harem for the rest of their life. They would leave their family, they would leave their friends, they would leave everything behind to become a part of Xerxes' harem. Uh, while they would live in the palace compound, it would effectively, they would effectively live the rest of their life as a widow unless they were chosen queen. Continuing verse 8, Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So we learned some more stuff about, about Esther. She's probably not a willing participant in this process. If you look in verse 8, it says that she was taken to be a part of this. Uh, she must have been incredibly beautiful. Think, think for a second. In the Miss America pageant, the Miss Vermont is, uh, is, is, is beautiful. Vermont's a, a state with 625,000 people. The, so Miss, uh, Miss Vermont, Vermont, the most beautiful girl in Vermont. Miss California is the most beautiful girl in a state with 37 million people. Okay? See, see the difference there? Esther is chosen out of Susa, the capital city of the kingdom of the world. She, is, she has to be incredibly beautiful. Drop dead gorgeous. Um, uh, she's not only beautiful, she wins over the heart of the guy who's, who's taking care of all of the girls in this, in this contest. As a result of that, she ends up with the best apartment, with the best schedule, the best food, and she ends up uh, with a, a crew of maids that know the ins and outs of the palace, uh, that know about the royals. They're going to know what Xerxes liked, what he didn't like. And this team is kind of like her makeover team, kind of like Katniss Everdeen in uh, Hunger Games, right? Their job is to get her ready for her night with the king. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day Mordecai walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Scripture doesn't tell us why. But Mordecai says, don't say that you're a Jew. Um, Esther is probably the fourth generation of Jews 
that, have li- that lived in captivity in this place. And so as a result of that, her physical features are all completely Jewish, but all of her mannerisms, her speech, the way that she handles her- herself is going to be like a native Persian. She's the fourth generation. So people would look at her and say, man, she's beautiful. I wonder, where'd she come from? They, they couldn't place her because she looked and acted like a Persian. Mordecai probably told her, don't say that you're a Jew because there was anti-Semitism in Persia. People didn't like the Jews, and Mordecai was protecting her. But Mordecai cares for her, so every day he's checking, seeing how she's doing. We've already established the qualifications for consideration as a queen. They've got to be young, beautiful, and a virgin. Uh, a, a virgin. And now in... Uh, Uh, verses 12 and 13 describe that process. I'm going to jump down to uh, 14. It's basically what happens in 12 and 13. It's a year's worth of spa treatments. Um, Everybody, each candidate is able to choose what they wear, to choose what they bring in, their jewelry, that kind of stuff. Understand that beauty is going to be very different from the different places of the kingdom. What's beautiful in India is not going to be what's beautiful in Turkey. uh, So they're allowed to, to adorn themselves in the way that they think will win Xerxes' heart. Verse 14, in the evening, the candidates would go uh, uh, into the king's palace, and in the morning, they would return to another part of the harem in the care of Shashgaz. I've been waiting to say his name. I think that's a fun name, Shashgaz. Um, uh, In the care of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She wouldn't return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned by her name. Pause for a second. There's no reason to believe that this is anything other than what you're thinking right now, okay? The girls get dressed up, they get made up, they leave the harem of the virgins, they go and spend the night with the king, and in the morning they're taken not to the, to the uh, harem of the virgins, but to the harem of the concubines. As coarse as this sounds, it's the reality. Xerxes is, is having a parade of one-night stands, to find the woman that he wants to marry. Yep, reading the Bible is boring, right? <laughs> um, and irrelevant. But it does sound roughly like a college campus, doesn't it? Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Uh, one more thing about Esther. She, she, she builds relationships with people, and people like her. She wins Miss Congeniality of the Persian Queen Contest, right? It's 479. Um, uh, Xerxes has returned from, from the war with Greece. It's been almost four years since Vashti was banished, and it's Esther's turn to go see the king. Verse 17. The king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Esther wins the contest and becomes queen. It's, it really is kind of a fairy tale, isn't it? This orphan girl becomes queen of the most powerful nation in the world. And everybody lives happily ever after or not, right? Fairy tales aren't always fun and beautiful. Yeah, Cinderella meets and marries Prince Charming, but her life before that was filled with abuse and pain. Esther's life begins as an orphan. Both her parents die 
She's raised by her cousin who loves her, but then is forcibly removed from his care to be taken to the palace, where in all likelihood she will end up as one of the king's mistresses. She has to sleep with the king in order to find out if she's good enough for him. And she's being compared to 400 other women. Understand that this romance is not hardly, I choose you, uh, I, 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 I vow to keep myself only for you as long as we both shall live. It's not that at all. There's still no mention of God. And yet in Esther's selection, in Esther's preparation, God is working in that process. Esther's beauty was the providence of God. God used her genetic code to have her in the right place at the right time. Don't miss this. God can use your genetic code to have you in the right place and in the, at the right time for his purposes. It may be your beauty. It may be your brains. It may be some kind of physical infirmity, a lazy eye, crooked teeth, a cowlick, baldness, height, athletic ability, a photographic memory, uh, aptitude for languages, the ability to make decisions in a moment without all the information available. God is the one who gives that ability and, and he uses it to place you in certain situations. When that happens, that's his providential care. Esther's friendship with Haggai was the providence of God. Haggai's advice to Esther to take only, uh, to, to not do anything special, but to just go in to the king as herself, that was the providence of God. Xerxes' selection of Esther, that was the providence of God. God's working, and Esther hits the lotto. Xerxes makes her his queen and declares a national holiday uh, for the entire country because Esther is now the, the queen. What a cool story, right? That's, that's pretty incredible. But there's some really weird aspects to this story, right? It makes you think, is this really in the Bible? Mordecai tells Esther to be deceptive about her background and, tell him she's, and not tell him she's a Jew. That's not right, is it? Xerxes, the king of this vast nation, is spending the night with 400 different women to find his queen. And Esther's one of those women. That's not right, is it? In order to be chosen, Esther is being treated like a commodity, like a piece of meat that exists simply for the king's pleasure. That's certainly not right. All of these women are being judged on something that they've never done before. Talk about pressure. The selection process doesn't just impact these young women, but it impacts their friends and families too. Because when they're taken to the king, they're removed from their surroundings, from their homes, and they're going to spend the rest of their life in Xerxes, not good enough for me, mistresses, essentially widowed for life. They don't get to experience love. They don't get to experience family life. They will probably never see their families or their friends again. That's not right. There's weirdness in this story. But even in that weirdness, God is working, and there's some takeaways for us. Let me, let, let, me, let me share some things that, for me, make sense in this passage of Scripture as the story of Esther unfolds. The first is this, the, the good life, becoming queen, having power, prestige, and fame, it always comes with a cost. Esther wins the contest, and she becomes queen. 
but it costs her. It costs her virginity. It costs her chance at a normal life. It could have cost her her relationship with Mordecai. Um, I don't want to get into it too much, but the wording that's there in the original language, um, Xerxes, it, it, what it pictures is that Xerxes didn't fall madly in love with Esther. He just liked Esther better than all the rest of them, that he chose her. He said, you know what, this, this is the best of the lot. There's not this sense of romance that we want to read in the scriptures there in terms of what the original language says. The good life comes with a cost. Understand that that's true physically, uh, no matter how you def- define good life, whether that's wealth, whether that's toys, whether that's power, whether that's influence, whether that, that's appearance, the good life comes with a cost. And it's true on the spiritual level as well. A good life spiritually is to be in right relationship with God, to be transformed by him, to be changed by him. But you know what? There's a cost to that. When we say yes to Jesus, it means that we say no to lots of other things. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's a cost that comes with a good life. Second thing is this. God is working even when success, and I put air quotes on that, even when success is intertwined with questionable behavior, activities, or motives. God is working even when Esther is chosen based solely on her appearance. God is working even when Mordecai has her lie about her nationality. Uh, God is working even when Esther is humanly trafficked to the king. Alistair Begg, the Scottish preacher from Cleveland, said this, These events are not as tidy as we might wish. We ought to be encouraged because the events of providence in our lives are not as tidy as we might wish. God's working. God's working even when success is messy. Last thing is this. God's responsible when we experience success. The title of this talk is that God is working when life is good. Esther gets elevated from an orphan girl to become queen with servants living in the palace. She has all the trappings of success. God is working in that process. Uh, God gives her the beauty. God uh, allows her to have this relationship with Haggai that takes care of her. Um, Don't miss this fact. God is working in success. There is nothing sinful about success. The good life is not inherently contradictory to the godly life. The good life is not inherently contradictory to the godly life. God is working when we fail. God is working when we live in obscurity. And God is working when we succeed. The danger in success is that we think that we did it all by ourselves, that we did it on our own. And we fail to see God working in that process. God's not just working. He's responsible for what happens in our lives. If God is sovereign, if God is sovereign, if God is sovereign, any success you achieve comes either because he caused it or because he allowed it, if God is sovereign. It doesn't matter if you celebrate his role. He's the one who gave you the raw material that allowed you to achieve. He's the one who put you in place so that you could achieve. He's the one who got you noticed. We still have to do our part. We still have to do our part in the process, the hard work, but it's God who gives success. Proverbs 21 says this, the horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory 
belongs to the Lord. We do the work. We prep. But God is the one who gives the victory. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Every good thing we have comes from God. You know, it's easy for us to believe that for our students that they have to get into the right college, they have to get the right grades, they have to have the right coach, they have to be involved in the right stuff in order to have a successful life. That's not true. It's not true. God is the one who is working providentially to have your resume noticed or not noticed. God is the one who brings up your name in a conversation that's totally unrelated to your job. The the people who are part of that conversation are the ones doing the job search. God is the one who providentially has you in the right place at the right time when you experience success. You know, in, in 2013, North Point went through a very difficult season that resulted in the music pastor, the lead pastor, the teaching pastor ending their ministries here. The lead pastor uh, at that point, uh, Tim English, spent time in Colorado at the conclusion of his ministry here at North Point. And while he was there, he ended up kind of by chance meeting this guy, getting acquainted with this business that existed in Colorado that did searches for churches to help them find staff members. He helped make an introduction with this company and North Point uh, that led to our elders here at North Point employing Agora to do the search for a new lead pastor. Six years earlier, the church where I was in Washington, D.C., had a resident church planner named Ron Klebundy who came to be a part of our staff. He worked on staff for about nine months, and Ron and I became friends in that process. When his residency finished, he went to plant a church in the D.C. area, and and ultimately, Deb and I ended up moving to Ohio to a ministry there. Um, In 2014... I was at a place that we were seeking God, saying, God, where do you want us to serve? What do you want us to do? And I emailed Ron, just as a part of my contacts with people, to see if he knew anything that might be a good fit for me. Ron told me that his roommate from college had just come to visit him, and that his roommate from college had a friend uh, that was a part of the conversation when they were in in, uh, D.C., that, that lived in Colorado, and that he worked for this company that did searches for churches. Ron introduced Stu to me uh, at that point in time by email, and we began to have this conversation about the possibility of what was going on at North Point and whether that would be a good fit for me. Um, As a result of that, uh, I came here to serve at North Point, chosen from 250 candidates from across the country. Look, I'm no Esther, all right? (laughs) I wasn't young, I wasn't beautiful, and we had six kids, so I was 0 for 3 on the Xerxes uh, criteria. But God's providential hand was involved in bringing Clubundi to the church that I was at in Virginia, in bringing Tim English into contact with Stu out in Colorado, in in Stu being uh, connected to North Point, and all of those pieces coming together. God's providential hand was in the center of it all. I wouldn't be speaking here this morning were it not for the providential care of God. And you wouldn't be sitting here this morning were it not for the providential care of God. So if you're in a place where you look around and say, wow, 
How did we end up here? We are so incredibly blessed at this stage in our life. Know that it's because of the blessing and care of God. And if you look around today and say, how did I end up in this place, in this mess they call life? Know that God is working. He has been working upstream, and it may be that he's preparing you right now for a life downstream in the palace. Hang in there. You can trust him. God has proven it through Jesus. If God is sovereign, there are no coincidences. We're going to finish this morning with a song from the band that's a song of encouragement. What I want you to do is to just sit and listen to the song. Soak up the words. Let the music, the lyrics wash over you. No matter what you're going through, if it's rough or if these are the best days of your life, God is working.